There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, I got a little thing I want to commend you on. What's that? We made it through summer. We did. Yep. We Survived. didn't melt. We persevered, really. Right? We made it through summer vacation. Thank God. With kids and all. And I don't know about you, but we're pretty happy that the kids start school this week because it's going to be a nice break for us from their summer break. I'm in a slightly different situation, but yeah, there's something good about getting back into the routine. Not that I don't love summers and all that kind of stuff, but... Well, summer's great, Yeah, but it's a cycle, just like a market. Exactly. Today, we're going to talk about some of these cycles. We're going to get going on our discussion. We've got quite the topic lined up. Kind of a potpourri of discussion topics today, in fact. Yeah, I think there's three or four we're going to get into, but one of them is investing headlines and how over the past two decades, how they've impacted performance. And also looking back at some scary headlines from the late 80s and early 90s. I think they were scary for me because, listen, in the late 80s, how old was I? I guess I was like, I don't know, 15 to 17 or something like that. And one of those headlines that came out, maybe I was a little bit younger, maybe I was around 12. When the headline came out, do you remember this headline about killer bees? Yes, I do. Do you remember how scary it was? (laughs) Sure sounds scary. Yeah, there was documentaries. Well, maybe not documentaries, but something like 2020 or one of those American talk shows, like 60 Minutes, things like that. They did some reporting on how these killer bees were migrating north from South America and they were going to be hitting the U.S. and make their way up to Canada. And they made it sound like a really scary thing. For sure. So I got a question for you, Greg. What happened to these killer bees? Where'd Where'd they they go? go? Yeah, good question. I had a hunch you were going to ask me that question. Well, it's in our show notes. Yeah, those killer bees, for anybody who maybe wasn't around for the headlines, they're formerly known as Africanized honeybees. And they were a hybrid that was created in Brazil in the 1950s. And the goal was to boost honey production. But what happened is those bees turned out to be much more aggressive than the European counterparts. A classic case of good intentions leading to unforeseen consequences, would you say? Exactly. As I was reading up about it, it turns out that It was kind of like a Jurassic Park movie kind of thing where one of the beekeepers of these hybridized bees wasn't aware that he wasn't supposed to let them mix or what have you. And and he actually let them out or let them mix with the regular bee population. And that essentially set off the whole shenanigans. And then the rest of us feared for our lives. Exactly. And of course, the concern was that they're very aggressive and that they would swarm people and animals, and actually they could kill people and animals. Anyway, so these bees spread north from Brazil, certainly sparking fears of the impact of anywhere north from there. And just calling them killer bees actually stirred up a lot of panic. Words can have an impact, choice of words, and call something a killer or something, and it's going to cause problems. 
And it turns out over time, the actual number of fatalities caused by them is relatively low. And in fact, over time, the beekeepers, researchers, and authorities have actually worked to manage their populations, educate the public about safety. And there was one interesting thing that came out of it. And that is that the Africanized bees have been proven to be highly resistant to infections that cause die-offs in the non-mixed strains of, of honeybees. And those die-offs, I mean, there's a lot of concern about if the bees go away, it's disastrous for agriculture because, of course, they're responsible for pollinating. So actually, the resistant Africanized bees coming to northern areas is actually a good thing, both scientifically and economically. But wait, you're going to keep referring to them as Africanized bees? Yeah. I'm going to keep referring to them as killer bees. Killers, yeah, okay. So these killer bees, they weren't eradicated. They were just basically controlled. So again, amazing how media can sometimes blow things out of proportion, would you say? Yes, absolutely. And it also brings me back to the whole Y2K thing. Remember Y2K? I remember Y2K very well. Yep. Year 2000, you know, and that's when back in the late 1990s, you know, you were dialing up the World Wide Web on AOL, probably. I never had AOL. but And anyways. when you wanted to talk to friends and family, you probably still picked up a phone and called them rather than texting, that well, kind of thing. unless somebody in your house was online, then That's you couldn't right. access the phone. Exactly. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so just a reminder for anybody who wasn't paying attention or was too young to care back in the late 90s, there was this big panic based on the idea that computer programs and programmers who hadn't expected their software to last that long only had used two numbers to designate the year, month, day, year, and in, in two numbers each instead of four numbers for the year. And so there was this concern that there was a chance that computers, which ran everything, would get confused and misinterpret the year as 1900 and there'd be potential catastrophes. Everything from elevators getting stuck, airplanes not flying, that kind of thing. Or VCRs not working. VCR, that would be yeah. even worse. But what's interesting is that Pretty much nothing happened on New Year's Eve, except that Prince's song 1999 got played a lot. <laughs> and as it turned out, that there was actually a fair bit of work done in advance of Y2K. So, in fact, Bill Clinton had tasked the President's Council on the year 2000 conversion, and they had worked in partnership with a bunch of international organizations. And so there was actually a lot of work done in advance of Y2K, and as a result, suddenly nothing happened. And so it just goes to show, as in the case of the killer bees, sometimes even like a potential disaster can be averted by somebody actually preparing for it yeah. and controlling it. But it say. also shows the significance of the headlines because during Y2K, it fueled fear. Absolutely. There were a lot of people that were worried that at the stroke of midnight, something bad was going to happen, which is so funny because, of course, we're in different time zones and it's midnight in... The UK, long yeah. before it's midnight in Calgary, and if nothing happened in the UK or wherever, why would it happen in Calgary? But I felt angst at the stroke of midnight. And the media hype, certainly some people, more of the survivalist types, I mean, they were stocking up on food and water and gasoline, you know, they thought- Wait, wait, this be... also happened recently during COVID. Exactly. <laughs> so, Greg, let's talk about headlines. Yep. Let's talk about it. You go. Okay, well- <laughs> that wasn't a very good transition, was it? Okay, okay, I'll go. Now you. Data shows that relying solely on news headlines for investment decisions can be risky. And we've seen that a lot, but they often reflect only short-term market sentiment, can be highly volatile and really not 
indicative of long-term trends. That is a pretty important point. It's easy to get caught up in the excitement of breaking news. As a matter of fact, CNN used to have a show that they called Breaking News. <laughs> they, exactly. they actually just changed it because not all news is breaking news. And investors need to keep a cool head and look beyond the headlines like Killer Bees, Y2K, etc. Absolutely. And in fact, there was a study conducted by the NBER, we've talked about before, National Bureau of Economic Research, and they found that trading, stock trading based on financial news can actually be less profitable compared to just a strategy focused on fundamental analysis of long-term trends or just passive buy and hold type investing. I know there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, that's a real eye-opener. It's not an eye-opener for us, really. We've sort of preached this for many years now. The National Bureau of Economic Research, they're responsible for cycle dating as well. And so they're the ones that call a recession or a contraction or an expansion. But they always use lagging data to call the recession. They're calling it after it's already happened. So how would it make sense to trade based off of financial news when really it would be kind of backwards looking, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I think it'd be more important to... I don't want to say do your own research, but understand the bigger picture. Yeah. And like you say, when you say do your own research, I agree that it's not really research that you need to do. It's just you need to be aware of what's going on. And it's important to note that by being aware, which means reading and understanding what's going on in the world, it's important to note that basically not all news sources are created equal. What? It's true. (laughs) Well, I think it's true. And so there's a lot of misinformation and biased reporting, and that can lead to misguided investment choices. And behavioral finance studies, which we've talked a fair bit about, have shown that investors tend to react emotionally to sensational news, which can result in impulsive decisions. And let's face it, most news headlines are sensational because the goal is to attract viewers and get them to see the advertising. There's not too many headlines out there that say it's pretty good right now. Yep, right? that's right. <laughs> yeah, Because <laughs> you won't sell many papers. Maybe that's an old thing. That's a 90s reference. Selling papers. Maybe we'll let the children know that are listening that we used to like buy newspapers and they used to be printed at night and you'd read them in the morning and look at them as a viable source of news information. Well, we've talked about it in an episode not long ago that kids used to, their first job used to be delivering newspapers to front doors. That was mine. Yeah, there you go. That was the beginning of many. Yeah, so not letting news dictate your investment moves is really critical, basically what you're saying. Any other insights on well, that? Just, as I said earlier, I mean, you want to stay informed. Like We believe that all investors should be informed as to what's going on, what's happening in the world, in the economy, and that kind of thing. But you have to combine that information with sound financial analysis and a long-term perspective. And we know that in the investing game, patience and knowledge are really the best allies. I've seen it too often over the years, people trading, doing short-term trading. I don't want to say strategies, but emotional trading based off of some event that they have read about or maybe even forecasted. And it usually doesn't work out that well. Well, no, that's right. You know, and it's fascinating to see how the landscape has evolved. Let's look back 20 years to the early 2000s. Remember Something called the dot-com bubble? I do. Oh, yeah. How could I forget it? I mean, I actually had a friend who got caught up in it. He had a friend who started a publicly traded company and gifted all of his friends millions of dollars of shares. And they all had these big, grandiose plans of retiring and buying private planes and 
seeing the world together. And guess what happened, Greg? Didn't work out so well? <laughs> no, they it went to zero. <laughs> so, I mean, not that dissimilar from Pets.com. Yeah, I mean, talk about the poster child of the dot-com era and the dot-com bust. I mean, in those days, all you had to do to become an instant millionaire was to start a company and call it dot-com. Or right now it'd be call it AI. That's right. It's just kind of a reminder that when you chase hype but not have solid fundamentals you know, underlying it can lead to disaster. But what's interesting is they didn't all go bust. The dot-com bubble created companies like Amazon, Google that not only survived that crash, but I mean, they thrived and are now the largest companies, you know, trading on the markets. Yeah. There was another company back then called Zappos. Remember that company? I do. So that company started by a guy named Tony something or other, who then went on to, like Zappos sold shoes and whereas Amazon sold books. That's how they started. And the founder of Zappos went on to write a book about how to create happiness in your life. He Unfortunately, he died shortly after writing that book, some say from maybe a drug overdose. So perhaps what was seen as a headline or a way to be wasn't actually the way it was being. Yeah. That was a little dark. But let's talk about another big event. Let's talk about the 2008 financial crisis. That was a tough time. The headlines were bleak. Like I remember the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all these credible news sources talked about how the market was just going to crash and never come back. And there was a lot of people that were not only scared to invest, but were selling. They were selling out of their positions when the market was down 50%. But there were some that went in and bought those same investments when the market was down 50%. Not a lot that I know of, but there were a few. And those people did very well. So there's that old saying, buy when there's blood in the streets, which is kind of a grim saying, but Basically saying, take advantage of human behavior. I still remember Warren Buffett was buying back when there was all these concerns about banks going under. And I remember he wrote an article that was, and I still remember the headline, it was called Buy American, I Am. And he invested, for example, I think he invested in Bank of America by buying preferred shares with a 9% dividend. And he made lots of investments during that time at ridiculously high yields based on his belief that America would survive. I mean, I actually just looked at some of those headlines from 2008 because having lived through it, you still get a little bit of PTSD when I see these. Lehman collapse sends shockwaves around the world. Mounting fears shake world markets as banking giants rush to raise capital. Panic grips credit markets. Worst crisis since the 30s with no end yet in sight. That's Wall Street Journal. Greg, I got to stop you there. You're bringing that panic back into I know. Me, just thinking about those things. Exactly. And here's one from just this past March. Fears of financial meltdown haunt governments. That was after Silicon Valley Bank had its problems. I well, guess not the just them, but the regional banks. That's yeah. right. I guess the bottom line is we never learn. And Warren Buffett's advice to be greedy when others are fearful really shines. And speaking of long-term gains, we can fast forward to the rise of index funds and passive investing. And we are believers in index funds and passive investing. Like, let's just put it out there. Over the past couple of decades, this investment strategy has gained immense popularity because investors have started to realize that beating the market consistently is tough. It's really tough. You hear about people that say they've got a stock picking strategy or whatever. It might work for a while. They might get lucky but then they can't replicate it. And then they take on too much risk to try to get back. 
most people would be way further ahead if they just bought the market. These market funds offer reliable way to match market performance. And if everybody got market performance, they'd probably be super happy. Exactly. When you look at index funds, which sort of had their dominance or their beginning of their dominance into the late 90s and early into the new millennium, then we talk about the era of tech dominance. So after the dot-com crash, there was this whole consolidation period of tech stocks that were going to survive, became very dominant. And then we used to talk, well, used to, like four years ago, three years ago, talked about the FANG stocks, FANG being Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And those took center stage and the world was changing and these companies were at the forefront of innovation. So investors who recognized the power of these tech giants saw some pretty substantial gains. Especially when we went through COVID, the sector that I believe was the highest performing, I might be wrong on this, but let's just say had one of the highest performing sectors was tech because of all the work from home measures and people just using more technology. There's a portfolio manager, Kathy Woods, who runs ARC Innovation ETF. And that particular ETF, I think it went up like 200% during COVID. And everybody looked at it like, wow, this is great. And a bunch of money piled in. And since then, it's gone down by at least 50% or more, maybe 60, 70, 80%. So what it points out is that you can't forget about the importance of diversification. Tech was great. But putting all your eggs in one basket is just the same story we've told many times over. And it's interesting, you know, because a lot of people these days will say, okay, well, this is a stock picker's market. You don't want to index because the indexes, they're either too concentrated. Like, so right now it'll be, well, the big seven. It used to be FANG, which was five stocks. Now it's the big seven, which make up a large portion of the S&P 500 index. And as we've talked about before, well, When you're indexing, you're actually getting exposure to all of these companies that are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. By being diversified and by owning the index, you're getting exposure to those companies without having to take the risk of saying, okay, well, I'm only going to hold seven stocks in my portfolio. The S&P 500 is up about 15% this year as we speak, which is not as high as the NASDAQ, which is up 30%, but it's Yeah, but the NASDAQ went down more. Exactly. And it's much better than the Dow Jones, which is a concentrated portfolio of 30 stocks. And so indexing gives you exposure to the new technologies and the companies that are going to become the biggest companies of the future. And the other thing is you can't overlook the impact of geopolitical events on investing either. There's the US-China trade tensions. There was Brexit a few years ago. Those kinds of headlines also had their own sway on the markets. Lots of volatility around those times and that news. Going back one point you just made to the FANG stocks, or the big seven, as you call them. One of those stocks is Apple. I was reading recently, Apple's market cap is the same size as the Canadian entire market market cap. That's pretty amazing to think about. But let's get back to markets. So markets can be quite sensitive to uncertainty. And, you know, it's important to stay focused on things like your long-term goals. And maybe people get tired of saying things like that, but that's all you can kind of control. You can't control who the next Apple is. There will be a next Apple at some point, but you can control whether you stay invested. And there's been a lot of recent interest, and, and we've spent some time talking about sustainable investing and ESG, environmental social governance investing and greenwashing of certain companies, et cetera. 
that's an area that's attracting a lot of attention these days. Well, sure, because a lot of investors, particularly younger investors, aren't looking only at financial returns. They also want their investments to align with their values. And that shift has pushed a lot of companies to be a little bit more transparent and accountable for their impact on the world. It's important to many people. But I would argue that those same people that are in their early stages of adulthood that put such an emphasis on ESG as they age, that emphasis on ESG probably will be overtaken by an emphasis on return. I'm just going to throw it out there that that's probably what's... Like, I find that it's easy to be very values-oriented when you don't have much to lose. Well, and I think the thing you have to remember, too, about ESG is it's not just environment. It is social and it is governance. And there's been a lot of attention paid to, well, how do large companies govern themselves and ensure that they're operating in the best way for their communities and for their shareholders? That's all a good thing, even if it doesn't go 100% over there. Well, but I would expect any publicly traded company to be focused on social and governance. Like that's, as you would say, table stakes. That's just part of being a big company. A Canadian company that ran into these issues that also had a lot of headlines back in the day was Nortel. The rise and fall of Nortel, once the pride of Canada's tech sector, I mean, its collapse was a huge reminder of the risks associated with its overexposure to a single stock. Like at one time, Nortel, I think, made up 25% of the Toronto Stock Exchange or so, something like that, 20 to 25%. That's got to be an issue. Oh, for sure. You know, so you do get that. And that was like, because of the Canadian markets, quite different than the US and much smaller. In the US, you might have seven companies making up 20 or 25% of the market. And here during the Nortel days, we had 25% in one single name. And yet investors that at least had diversified portfolios, even if they own Nortel, came out okay. And likewise with the 2008 financial crisis, Canada weathered the storm relatively well, but still significant impacts on the Canadian economy, investors' portfolios. But I think one of the things that I do want to highlight, which we always tell our clients, is when you go through periods like that, whether it's the dot-com crash or 2008, 2009, it's all on paper. It's only on paper, you know, and those declines are only on paper until you sell. With any kind of optimism about the economies and the world order and markets, which hopefully most investors are optimistic, when optimism just means thinking that the future is going to be better than the past, hopefully, then you've got to remain optimistic and realize, as I say, that paper losses aren't real losses until you trigger them. Yeah, but I mean, you've got to be diversified and be optimistic. There's just so much data and evidence that shows anybody that was diversified during the global financial crisis, COVID, you name the cycle that we've been through, Brexit, .com, whatever, as long as you didn't have all of your assets in one sector or worse, in one company, you came out okay. The reason I want to bring this up is what I'm hearing about right now is how last year I was golfing with a friend of mine, a couple guys a few weeks ago. And one of the guys was talking to me about his portfolio and how the company he's invested in has really gone really deep into ESG and they're excluding oil and gas assets from their investment thesis. And he said that he held some oil and gas stocks outside of that company because he worked in oil and gas. And how last year, if he hadn't held those stocks, 
he would have had a terrible year because oil and gas was the place to be last year, which is absolutely true. Oil and yeah. gas stocks had a very good return in 2022, where the market did not. The argument is, so what? Going forward, like into 2023, oil's down to, I don't know, $70 a barrel or something like that yep. from 120 So now energy stocks are not having a good year this year. So as long as you had a well-diversified portfolio that included oil and gas and included other things, you're probably going to do okay. Well, it's interesting because you and I talk about the Canadian market being such a small market compared to the U.S. and others, which I agree with, of course. However, you just mentioned commodities and energy. I mean, oil and gas stocks make up only 4% of the S&P 500. So in fact, the U.S. market is broadly diversified with the exception of energy. And so, yes, people that were at least exposed to the Canadian market, which has a much higher exposure to oil and gas, for example, and commodities, did fairly well. And so it's why we never tell people, don't limit yourself, don't only own Canadian stocks, don't only own U.S. stocks. You want a a diverse portfolio because commodities are really a two-edged sword, as you point out. I mean, they did extremely well in 2022, but you certainly weren't happy owning a lot of energy stocks or commodity stocks in 2020, which saw negative oil futures for a brief period of time. That one day where they would pay you $35 a barrel to take the oil. (laughs) Exactly. Always a two-edged sword. And so once again, just pounding the table on diversification. I think we're kind of coming to the close here today. All right. But before we do, I want to finish with one last item. Okay. And that is volatility. And I want to talk about the VIX because I have not seen any headlines recently about the VIX. The VIX is just a measure of market volatility and it is down more than 50% this year from its highs. So can you maybe just expand a little bit for our listeners on what the VIX is? Yeah. And this is one of those situations where when something's down 50% from its high, it's a good thing. The volatility index, it's the CBOE, Chicago Board and Options Exchange. Anyway, so they have this volatility index called the VIX. It's a real time index. That's a real ticker. And it basically represents the market's expectations for the relative strength of near-term price changes of the S&P 500 index. So it's an index that's derived from the prices of SPX, the S&P 500 index options, with near-term expiration dates. And so then you get a 30-day forward projection of volatility. And volatility is a measure basically of how fast prices change. And it's often seen as a way to gauge market sentiment, in particular the degree of fear among market participants. And so typically when the VIX index is high, I think it reached something like 80 during the financial crisis, that's an extreme level of volatility, meaning an extreme level of fear accompanying the downturn. And when volatility drops like it has over the last year, it's indicating not an extreme level of fear. It attempts to measure the magnitude of price movements, as you mentioned, of the S&P 500. But the more dramatic the price swings are in the index, the higher the level of volatility and vice versa. But what you're seeing right now is that the VIX... Greg, are we recommending that people invest in the VIX? No, we're not. It's uh, it's strictly an indication of market sentiment. (laughs) Exactly. You could. There are ways to invest in it, but why would you? The ticker is VIX-US. It is something you can... I follow it. It is at 14.27 right now. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything if I tell somebody the VIX is at 14.27. 
but it is down from 34.88 just within the last 12 months. So that drop in volatility is about 59 or 60%. So market volatility is way down this year, but consumer sentiment also seems down, which seems a little weird to me because if market volatility was down, you would expect consumer sentiment to be higher and you would expect the market to go much higher. So it is a little strange. It is counterintuitive. And I think a lot of the issues come around what we were talking about earlier, and that's the headlines. Because if you read the headlines right now, they're basically 50-50 among analysts as to whether we're going to avoid a recession and have yeah. a soft landing or whether the recession is coming and it's just six to 12 months away. So there's absolutely no consensus, which maybe is a good thing because consensus often is wrong. But I think people are still worried that, okay, interest rates are still high. They might go higher. Maybe a recession is around the corner and that's never good for portfolios in the short term anyway. So do we call it the Africanized VIX or the killer VIX? You can call it the killer VIX just because it sounds more sensational. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Does that wrap it up That'll for today? That'll wrap it up for this week. You bet. Okay. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.